Now, I would like to call upon Dr. Rajiv Manhotra to speak on is Sanskrit dead or alive, oppressive or liberating, political or sacred. Dr. Manhotra was acquainted to me when he came to our conference in 2005. And also at that time, he also spoke at the plenary session. And he always had new uh, idea regarding Sanskrit. May I now request him to speak uh, this time again? Namaste. Your Royal Highness, I remember 10 years ago I was here for the World Sanskrit Congress 2005 in Bangkok, and you graced the occasion, inaugurated, and sat through the whole three days, and I'm so honored to be here again after 10 years. The inaugural session at that time had three of us speakers. We had Murli Manohar Joshi ji, then myself, and Professor Gombrich from Oxford. And a lot of water has flown down the Ganga since then, and it's a good time to see how we are today, how we have advanced compared to where we were. I would like to first tell you that my area of study in Sanskrit has been focused on how insiders and outsiders see the tradition differently, in which ways they are seeing it the same, in which ways they complement, and in which ways they disagree and even have conflicting ideas. So I made a talk, the plenary, the inaugural talk there, which was published in, a, in the journal here in the Sanskrit University, the Center for Sanskrit Studies in their Sanskrit journal. And that discussion about insiders and outsiders, I've continued researching, and my book on that subject is ready with the publisher and will be out in September. So I'll tell you a little bit about it because this is 10 years since I started this uh, thinking about this topic right here for the World Congress in Thailand. And so now that 10 years are over, uh, that book is ready. So I'll tell you a little bit about it. The, the idea of insider and outsider is not ethnic or national. It has to do with drishti, perspective, gaze. You can have the insider gaze, insider perspective, or the outsider perspective. And many of my Western friends are insiders in terms of their perspective. On the other hand, a very large number of Indians have the outsider perspective when it comes to Sanskrit and Sanskriti, because they're very westernized, very secularized, and do not have the same insider view that we have here. The insider view of Sanskrit sees it as more than just a language, but actually the grammar of a civilization, the DNA of the Sanskriti. And the insider sees it as a living tradition, living through the yagnas, through the mantras we use in meditation, 
through the words which are non-translatable, that are part of our thought process, these non-translatable Sanskrit words contain a lot of metaphysics, they contain a lot of practices, sacred practices that we have. So they have Shraddha, which is itself a non-translatable, which the outsiders do not share. The insiders see it as a very sacred tradition, a very extraordinary tradition. They see it as the meta-language for vernaculars, the meta-language which supports and has a two-way interaction with all kinds of vernaculars, not only in South Asia, but also in Southeast Asia. They see it as vibrations, the Sanskrit vibrations, which are non-translatable because they're vibrations. They are not just conceptual ideas that you can replace with another, another language. They see kavya, natya, as an, as an extension of Sanskrit itself because it's Sanskrit being enacted, the Sanskrit metaphysics being enacted. Things like shastra, which are taking the, the real patterns of Sanskrit thought and putting them into different domains of knowledge from architecture to medicine to you know, whatever, mathematics and so on. They're all based on Sanskrit basic assumptions. So the insiders are very, uh, it's, uh, the insiders also uh, are convinced that Sanskrit has its own systems of interpretation. So when you, when you interpret Sanskrit, there are many theories, many alternative views. You can compete, disagree, argue, come up with your own interpretation, but there are certain principles of interpretation that are within the system itself. Outsiders do not agree with these kind of things. Outsiders tend to look at Sanskrit mainly as a language, not necessarily as a whole architecture and way of life, the way the insiders do. May not have the same shraddha. I have started focusing on a particular outsider school, which is US-centered, which I call American Orientalism. And in this book, I differentiate between the earlier European Orientalism started by people like William Jones and many, many others from you know, Europe. I differentiate between that and the new American Orientalism because it's centered in the US, not because there's anything national or ethnic about it in the US. And when I study this American Orientalism, and I, I describe in detail in my book what is different about it and how the traditionalist view is very different and how a traditionalist would do Purva Paksh on this American Orientalist view and respond to it. I look at three or four major differences that would concern a, a, a traditionalist when they look at the American Orientalist view. Uh, the absence of sacredness, the whole Paramarthika realm, is undermined or dismissed uh, because it's considered either socially abusive, it's considered to be something that su supports a hierarchy of power, uh, it is toxic. The words used are toxic, poisonous, abusive, social hierarchy, these kind of, a lot of words in the vocabulary of this school. So the sacredness is removed. We argued why it should be removed. In, in terms of what's valuable, and the idea of social, political oppression is added. So this is an outsider's lens because the insider who's practicing does not see it that way. 
Of course, there are social problems, but there are social problems in every system. And these can also be solved from within. You do not need a Marxist intervention or an outsider intervention to do that. So, uh, the, uh, the, the, what I am trying to do is a purvapaksha of the American Orientalism school, uh, bring out issues that the insider, the traditionalist, should know about. So far, I find that most traditionalists are unaware of this. Some of them don't care. Some of them find that the writings of the American Orientalists are too difficult, too dense, too complicated, and not very easy for them to understand because these things are written in Western theories. For instance, I would guess very few people would know a whole lot about a European thinker called Vico, V-I-C-O. Very few traditional Sanskrits have talked to know about it. Yet, dominant school of Sanskrit studies in Chicago, in Colombia, and so on, use Vico's ideas, Vico's principles, to critique the Paramarthika realm. So this would be something a traditionalist cannot respond because he doesn't even know what they're talking about. Very few would have understood a whole lot about Benjamin and his theory of the aestheticization of power, which is how that school interprets the spread of Sanskrit through Southeast Asia. The whole spread of Sanskrit through Southeast Asia as a sort of conspiracy between Brahmins and royal courts to come up with a system of hierarchy and power over the common public such that the royal kings would be seen to be divine and the Brahmin is the one who does the black magic of Yajna to make that happen and so both of them support each other and the common public is sort of exploited. And this is done in a very aesthetic way. Aestheticization of power is a theory which says you keep your power but in a way that don't, people don't think it is about power, about your power. People think that you are actually giving them entertainment, you're giving them power. So you do kavya, you do dance, you do ramayan, you have architecture, you have paintings, and everybody participates, and they all feel very happy, but actually the power is with the people who've come up with this whole system. So there is this theory that the whole spread of Sanskrit and ramayan was this kind of a conspiracy to do this throughout Southeast Asia. So it spread as a sort of franchise, the Brahmins franchised it in one king after another, quickly. That's why it spread so quickly. So there are all these theories. And so, for a traditionalist to respond, first you need to understand what the theory is saying. And to understand that, you have to go to some uh, university in, in, in the U.S. and spend many, many years studying Western thought, uh, the Frankfurt School of Marxism, and Gramsci, the Italian Mark, uh, head of the Communist Party, his theories on these ideas. So. Either the person has to submit to years of study of Western Marxist leftist thought in order to understand what they're saying. And if he does that, he'll become one of them. He will, and this, there's a whole army of such Indians trained now in the American Orientalism lens to come back to India and apply this way of thinking to study and interpret Sanskrit. Some of these people are in very powerful positions in academia, in uh, uh, media, and so you see a very sophisticated uh, view of Sanskrit which says it's a system of exploitation, it's a system of, you have to study it as a system of power. Now, the differences are that we look at it, the insiders look at it as a sacred system, as a positive system that gives us value and purpose and so on. 
It has problems like any other system has, but we can also solve it. We have solutions and we have solved problems in the past. Whereas the outsiders does not see it as a system which is positive, they see it as a Marxist class struggle, a socio-economic exploitative kind of a system. So these are basic differences. The American Orientalist view of Rasa is not a system of transcendence necessarily, but Rasa is a sort of a secular emotion, but that's, that's it. Whereas we would see that that is one aspect of it, but there's more to it. Uh, the idea that uh, Ramayana is being interpreted by this outsider school as uh, a system Valmiki created to bring oriental despotism into the South Asia and Southeast Asia because this would, be, this would, give, uh, this would justify the king being divine and the enemy being the Rakshas. So the divine king and the demonic enemy became a kind of story that the kings could apply to fight their enemies by convincing their people that we are the divine, you have to be on our side, and we are fighting the enemy, and they are the demonic. So, that, so using this kind of an interpretation, a vast library, a vast inventory of dissertations, journals, conferences, a lot of content has been created in the last 25, 40, 30, 40 years, which is what I'm going through and giving in my own analysis. Now, the centers of learning, unfortunately, of our Sanskrit are outside the South Asia and Southeast Asia. The most prestigious journals are in the West. The most powerful academic chairs are in the West some of the best libraries, some of the most uh, prestigious appointments are in the West. Most Sanskrit traditionalists I've talked to would rather go on a trip to the West and get an appointment there, become a visiting professor. So the power structure is there. This means that the prestige for uh, who speaks with greater adhikar, authority, who controls the research dollars, who controls the, who is the gatekeeper of distribution of knowledge? Who makes policies on what is right for, what is the right kind of a Sanskrit, uh, you know, approach, the lens? These things are not necessarily under the control of the people for who, who are insiders. Because there's a history of the colonial history of controlling from the outside is, is well known. People in post-colonial studies have done a lot of work on understanding and exposing how this control of Indian civilization, Indian history, interpreting Indian religions, uh, interpreting Indian knowledge was taken over as part of the colonial process because when you can go to people and say, I am gifting you your history, I'm gifting you what your tradition was which you don't know, people feel very happy and they're in awe and they're saying thank you. And that's how colonialism works. So decolonization is more than just getting political and economic freedom. India got political freedom, and now thankfully India is also on its way of, forget, of getting economic freedom. But the intellectual freedom, the cultural freedom, the academic freedom is still to happen. And that decolonization requires doing the sort of things that Krishna Shastriji said. 
and therefore I am really happy that he's here and he's worked very, he's helped me in my project in many, many ways. So this decolonization is a process of us doing Purva Paksha on the dominant schools that have been studying us, that have been telling and re-exporting the knowledge back to us to tell us what is what. Now you see Sanskrit being appropriated into computational linguistics. Computational linguistics is at the cutting edge of computer science for natural language translation. And what they are finding is that Panini's language, Panini's grammar is a good engine in which various languages can be mapped and used to translate across back from each other. Now all this is fantastic, but in order to make the Sanskrit simple enough for the new sponsors who are all Western big companies in computational linguistics, uh, to make it acceptable to them, understandable to them, they've also simplified, they've reduced the, the kinds of pronunciations, for example, the intonations, the, the character set is less to make it more computer friendly. So Sanskrit has to become computer friendly in order to expand. So on the, uh, they will say, we are doing you a favor. Look, your language will go everywhere. But that's like taking yoga and collapsing it into exercise and saying, look, we are doing you a favor because it's going everywhere. So this idea of, uh, this is a double-edged sword. When you give adhikar to others, they will take it, digest it, take it further, but they will also modify it and distort it. So this is, I give the example of a tiger who eats a goat and digests it. And whatever is useful about the goat becomes part of the tiger DNA. And what is not useful, he throws it out. And there is no more goat left. There's only a tiger, stronger. Now, a foolish goat would say, you know, this is good for us because the tiger can take us further. We sit in the tiger's stomach and we can have a good joy ride. The reason he's foolish is that there is no more goat left anyway. So it's not that you are sitting in the, stom in the stomach. So it's not that Sanskrit sitting in the belly of the West will go further because then it won't be Sanskrit anymore. It will have been digested into something else. Like a large amount of Indian civilization already has been digested into things that are known as Western, but they're not. That's another project I'm doing is to excavate back our civilization which has been digested and which is no longer recognized as ours even by our own people, even by our own people. So, what I need is what I call a home team. We need a home team of traditionalists who also understand the Kurukshetra, the intellectual Kurukshetra, who understand what is going on, who is who, how they're playing this game, what is their strategy, and who to work with, who to be careful of. Now, one of the major improvements today compared to 10 years ago, is a huge scale of Indian participation which was not there at that time. In fact, the organizers had a very difficult time to motivate and get Indians interested. And I was, my foundation, even though a small foundation was approached to come, to come and be one of the sponsors, uh, one of the two, we and the uh, Thai people together did this because the Indian government didn't want to. But today I'm very happy that the Indian government has, got, has opened the gates and is sponsoring Sanskrit and funding Sanskrit and we are people like Krishna Shastriji and Kutum Shastriji and others who are uh, really 
understanding this and helping it spread. But when you open the floodgates, all kinds of people get in. You also have to be careful. Because when word gets around, Indian government got money, Indian government got positions in Sanskrit, everybody's got the motivation to get in. Good people, bad people, whatever people, everybody want to get in. Because who would like to avoid uh, opportunity to make extra money and of course prestige, and plus it's a very good strategy to smuggle in and infiltrate. So this idea of the insiders having a home team, doing this Purva Paksha and Uttar Paksha on the others is very important, more important than it ever was. I also find uh, the reason I got my project reactivated a year ago, this project of studying insiders, outsiders of Sanskrit, which I started 10 years ago. You know, I had put it on the shelf and I was working on other things. A year ago, I suddenly woke up because something very strange happened. Some friends who are wealthy in the uh, New York, New Jersey area where I live called me and said that they are going to uh, create Shingeri Mutt Pitams, Shingeri Mutt branches in US universities. And this is very good because Adi Shankara will become very famous now. All the Americans will be teaching him. I, my antennas went up. I wanted to know who will be in charge. What kind of teaching will they do? Whose lens will, lens will they use, insiders or outsiders? And sure enough, they had appointed a person on whose work my whole book is now uh, based. A person who's sort of the head, the most important person in the American Orientalism view whose own view and his students' view is that Purva Mimamsa was something very abusive, socially abusive and toxic and the project that he's on is to detoxify, to get rid of those kind of ideas from Sanskrit and whose own their ideas are that Adi Shankara comes and his Uttar Mimamsa response makes it even worse. So I took this and I said to the uh, Shankaracharya, I met the Shankaracharya himself in Shringeri. I talked to the people who are funding this chair in the US. I talked to the uh, US based uh, people in charge of Shringeri Mutt. And I said, this, these are the people, this is their ideology, this is the work they've done. These are the people who you will turn over the keys. You're outsourcing the legacy of R.D. Shankara to these people. You should do your due diligence, you should do your Purva Paksha. After that, you accept it. After you know what they are like, you can accept it. But don't do it because of their prestige, because of newspaper articles, because of very, very sophisticated speeches. Don't do it for that reason. You need, your tradition requires you to do scholarship. And Adi Shankara went around and did real serious scholarship against his opponents and debated with them. It was not based on PR and appearances. And it's not a question of that they are nice guys. The only answer I got back was, oh, but they're very nice guys. We meet them, they're very pleasant, they talk to us nicely. But I said that is part of the aestheticization of power. The very same thesis they have built to explain how Sanskrit spread, that same process they are using to spread their own ideology. It's called the aestheticization of power, meaning you spread your power in a very aesthetically nice way, you're nice guys. So I found that our traditional scholars, the, the people who are funding it, some of them are very large industrialists, some of them are government-related, media-related, all sorts of people who are funding these kinds of projects were completely ignorant in, beyond the surface level of what was being presented. So in closing, I want to say that
uh, my book, which is coming out in three months, uh, has, it's called Battle for Sanskrit. It could have had the byline insiders versus outsiders, because that's what it's all about. It's two camps. And I'm not saying one camp is right or wrong. I'm saying the outsiders cannot have total control. The insiders need a seat at the table. They, they, they need a seat at the table. And as long as they're both equally represented and able to debate, I'm happy. But right now, the insiders do not have a seat at the table. And all, that's all I want. The byline actually is three debates. The byline is, is Sanskrit dead or alive, oppressive or liberating, political or sacred? These are the three debates. Because the outsider camp says it's dead, and we don't accept that. And Shastriji is giving me a lot of evidence, which I'm going to add, uh, that it has uh, the new knowledge that is being produced. The outsider camp says it is oppressive. And I say it's liberating. And so that's a very big debate we need to have. We, we cannot just let them go on with this. And the third one is political versus sacred. The American Orientalist camp have come up with a term political philology. They feel that ordinary philology has failed, is a bad idea, because ordinary philology romanticizes Sanskrit and Sanskriti and allows the abuse to continue. All the people who are oppressed, the downtrodden, all of them, by this civilization and this culture, uh, are, need to be saved and rescued, and they need to be liberated. And this liberation can happen if you do political philology, which means you look for political power hidden in every text. Every text, you look for political power hidden there, and you excavate that and, and show them that this is how the exploitation is happening. So to counter the theory of political philology, I am introducing in this book my own term, which I call sacred philology. That Sanskrit should also be studied through sacred philology, which is a different kind of lens, which I explain in this book. Thank you very much.